In Isaiah 37, we want to look, uh, just read this for a moment and then move on. We're going to begin in verse 8 and we're going to read through verse 20. Isaiah 37, 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libya, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the king of Assyria has, kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and, you shall be, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were are, who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you are alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the, king of, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. In looking at this prayer, that Hezekiah made, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you to look at, at Judah in, as far as the Assyrian Empire is. All this green is Assyria, and there's this little enclave here. This small area is Judah, and they are completely surrounded by the territory that Assyria has taken. And so in that area of the world, they're the last free people, if you will. And they serve God. And here's Hezekiah. And he, he has this ultimatum from the Assyrian king, from Sennacherib. And part of it is it's in a letter. And so he's, what about the gods of the other kingdoms? Have they, have they helped them? And he takes this letter and he spreads it out before the Lord. He spreads it out before the Lord so that the Lord can just see everything. I, I always smile when I, when I read that because he wants to, everything to be open to the Lord. And look what he calls him. He said, O Lord of hosts, the, the God of Israel, who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And so he's appealing to the God that's the creator, that made everything, and he's the king of kings, and he wants him to hear and see what Sennacherib has said to him. The Assyrians have laid waste everything. Everything they've got in their hands on, they've changed it into their territory. They've laid it waste. And so what's, what Hezekiah says, 
save us from his hand. Save us in this time of national emergency. That if, if we're not helped, then we're going into captivity just like all these other nations. Just like Israel has gone into captivity. And the reason for doing this, that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you are the Lord. If you'll save us, they'll know that you are God and not those other gods. And so in, in Isaiah 37, verse 21, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against the Necrib king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. And he goes on, and I'm not going to read all that. But um, then let's read verses 37, uh, 33 through 38. <clears throat> it's coming to a conclusion here. <clears throat> Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come, come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So Isaiah gives the answer. It, it sounds like it's pretty quick. Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, he says. So Sennacherib's letter was against God. And so the angel of the Lord goes out. And 185,000 of the Assyrians uh, are killed because of this. And then read verses 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out. And killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all around. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon reigned in his place. So he's got... Two, two of his sons kill him, and he's back in Nineveh now after having been uh, uh, taking countries, but never Israel, Judah. His two sons kill him, and his son reigns in his place. Makes me wonder, though, if Hezekiah had not prayed that prayer, would, he, would, would Jerusalem have been saved? In verse 21 of Isaiah 37, because you have prayed to me against the necro king of Assyria. It sounds like that God is saying through Isaiah the prophet that, you know, without this prayer, I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't save Jerusalem. But he's doing it, as we know, in verse 35, because of, for his own sake and for my sake, servant David's sake. So I want us to just look for a few minutes at... Uh, at prayer this morning um, and just think about some things um, about prayer. But before we really get into the, the prayer, I want us to, uh, I want us to turn 
if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, I want us to read another prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year as I was in Shushan, the, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night for the children of Israel, your servant, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the, of the heavens, then I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling, dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. It's interesting that Nehemiah is weeping over and mourning the city which he's never seen. He was born in captivity. This is about 180 or 190 years or something like that after Jerusalem was taken captive the first time by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's about 90 years from the time that Zerubbabel led the first group back out of captivity. And so he's never been to this place, but his brethren live there that have returned from the captivity. And he is mourning for them. He says he mourned many days, mourned many days. And if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had, I had never been sad in the presence. Before. This is about four months later. By about four months has passed since he first got word. And I don't know if he mourned many days all those days. I don't know if that would included all those days. 
But when he's in front of King Artaxerxes at this point, he is still not very happy, is he? His, you, there's a countenance fallen among, with him that uh, hasn't been that way before. And so he prayed many days. He mourned many days. And he prays to the Lord. And look again. O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer. He's addressing the God of heaven. Great Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, and one who keeps his covenant. He can rest assured that what God said he would do, he will do. He also confesses the sins of him, his own sins, and the sin of his people. When he says, we have done corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. We just didn't do it. That's why they're there to begin with. That's why they're in captivity. That's what led to their captivity was being unfaithful to God. And so they're in trouble. They've been back, some of them, the, the first group, or maybe two groups, Ezra with them. Yeah, I guess it was. And they're still not done what they were allowed to return to do. They just haven't done it. There's been some resistance, and they just quit. But he prays that God would do what he said he would do. You know, you, you said if we return to you, Although we've been unfaithful, if we return to you, you'll, you'll gather us again. He's reminding God. I don't think God needs reminding, but he's felt compelled to do that. If they return to him, he'll gather them back. It's interesting, though. The reason I wanted to read this prayer is because of a phrase in verse 11. That your servants who desire to fear your name. O oh Lord... I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he wants mercy as well. But it's, I think it's interesting that um, grant, uh, that please listen, be attentive uh, to your servants who desire to fear your name. That those who fear God would turn and do what he said do, and he will be attentive. That's his prayer. And ask for mercy. So I just, I wanted to read those and um, just think about some things about those two prayers. But really, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll... We'll spend the time there. Matthew chapter 6. Then the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 9 through 13. In this manner therefore pray. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is an in this manner pray prayer. Uh, this is the way you should pray. Not every word of it. I'm not saying that. But Jesus is telling them, when you pray in verse 5, when you pray, he said, in this manner pray. This is not the Lord's prayer, as many of the whole world would call it the Lord's prayer, but it's not. But this is a how-to. If you want to read the Lord's prayer, read John 17. But not this one as far as that, because he wouldn't have any sins or any to, to be forgiven. But do it in this way. And he says, our Father in heaven. You remember how Hezekiah and Nehemiah addressed God. That he is awesome. He is uh, the king in effect. He didn't quite say it that way. But he's in charge of all this because of who he is. But what we understand as far as God hearing prayers that really only those who have received the gospel of the kingdom are really a privilege to pray in this way that can call on God as father. You know, Cornelius, his prayer was heard because of what he had done for the Jews. But still he had to obey the gospel to receive forgiveness. Or anything, and that's why Peter went to him. But only those who are privileged to uh, be part of his body, I think, will be heard. When Simon was told to pray that the, even the thoughts of his heart might be forgiven him, uh, he had already been baptized. So that's, I, we need to be assured that we're part of that kingdom so that our prayers would be heard. He says, hallowed be your name. It means holy, but we would consider him to be holy. And that refers to his nature and his character and his personality, that this is who he is. He is the God who created everything. There is nothing within him or around him or anywhere that has anything remotely to do with sin. It's just not there. And so he will be considered holy in the strictest sense of the word. And what it also does, it sets the mind of the one who's praying to be in reverence or be in awe of him. That he is indeed the God of heaven. It establishes the correct frame of mind about God as, as opposed to me. Who, who am I? That he would listen to me. Me, a sinner. Done things that are embarrassing. But yet he would listen to me. He is hallowed. But we need to talk to him. It doesn't. There's nothing I can say in a prayer or you or any of us 
that could make God any more holy than he is. Uh, we can't do it. He's holy. He is thoroughly holy. He is pure. And nothing I say was going to make that any more fitting for anyone. But it sets our mind, hopefully, to think about that I am addressing the God who lives and the only God there is who lives. And what we understand is he is to be treated as holy and his name not despised by thoughts and conducts of anyone who's created in his likeness. And I, I think of Romans chapter 1 where, well, let's just read that for just a moment. Ro Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew him, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. I'll stop there. You get the idea that the wrath of God is revealed for those who ignore him or belittle him or talk against him as though he doesn't exist. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them for God has shown it to them. He's shown it through his creation of who he is. For since creation of the world in verse 20, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. His eternal power and Godhead. So that anybody, they're, they're without excuse. Anybody that doesn't acknowledge him is without excuse. And I think of what Stephen said to the Jews, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. They just don't want, they don't care. Just don't want to know the truth. And they did not glorify God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. That my attitude when I go to him in prayer is not that. When I go to him in prayer that I'm speaking to our creator. And he is the one who can do with my soul as it deserves. Whether I serve him and he rewards me when this life is over or I do not serve him and he punishes me, it's in his hand. Also, when he, when, in this model prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, 
This would be recognition that God's name is to be exalted because his will is going to be done. His will will be done. That God's purpose will be accomplished among men. And it will. And I often think that Jesus knew that all of this was going to happen. That, all, that he was going to suffer. And that he was going to die. And the punishment that he would that would be inflicted upon him, not for anything he had done, but when he prays in the garden that if this, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, that I don't really physically, I just don't want to do this, but let your will be done, not mine. Physically, he didn't want to. It would have been physically easier for him not to have to go through this. But it wasn't his will that he was trying to do. It wasn't the son's will to set the parameters. It was the father. And the father said, you've got to die. And so he did it. He did it. So God's purpose is his will will be done and that we would submit to his will and change our lives accordingly to where we will be acceptable to him. And prayer humbles us and speaks up to him. He also tells us to give us this day our daily bread. You know, in, in place of steps of order in this prayer, this is not uh, the primary concern, is it? It's not. It does have a place of importance, though. We uh, have all of us, probably, if you're like Sandra and me, we have cans of food in the... In, <laughs> this is not talking about just food, but we've got plenty if we want to eat today and the rest of this week on what we have at home, we won't, we'll be fine. He's not talking about just bread, but he's talking about all the necessities of life. We're, we're loaded, if I may use that phrase. We have it. This country is blessed beyond compare for any country in the world. But the thought is that we would appeal to him to give us what we need today. Not an over, not an overabundance like we are blessed with, but let's provide for us today. It, there's nothing so small that we can't talk to him about that he wouldn't listen to us. What this prayer does is develops faith that it's not us; it's him who supplies us. He gives us the health to work. It might seem that we earn this money and we we're getting it on our own. He gives us health to work. So what we do is we trust in God and his promises. If you love me, keep my commandments. You won't go hungry. I, pro, I, I heard a, a, a preacher say that one day. And I said, what about, uh, what about David? He's, he, there was a time when he didn't have anything. He was basically begging for food. He sat back in his chair and he thought. That was a temporary situation. I said, 
You're exactly right, wasn't it? But that's right. We will be provided for. So what we need to do is quit learning to trust in stuff and to lean on God for our sustenance. But there's something else. And forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts, rather, excuse me. But Luke 2, verse 4 calls it sin. Forgive us our sins. We all have sins, have had sins. So in the prayers that he's talking about, there's a constant awareness that we lack something, a constant awareness that we have something that we shouldn't have, and that's sin. And we can live without sin. We don't have to sin. We're given a way out, 1 Corinthians 13.10. That we just don't have to do it, but we just do it. Our lusts get in the way. We cannot afford to be without God's mercy and his strength. We can afford the loss of things, but we can't afford to suffer the loss of God. That's a quote from Paul Earnhardt. We can get by without some things, but we can't get by without God. It's just not going to happen. Not in be where we want to be when this life is over. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's a two-way thing, isn't it? That I must be willing to forgive others. That grudge shouldn't be there. It, that's hard sometimes. To somebody said something that just rubs you the wrong way and you just hold it and you keep it. <coughs> but refusing to show mercy to others shows God that we're probably not worthy of his forgiveness. That we have to be willing to do that. Forgive those who need forgiveness, who ask for forgiveness. <laughs> Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Literally, and this is literally, this temptation is an examination to learn the nature or character of someone or something. Or think of Abraham offering his son. God says, now I know. But this may also be temptation because we've got to be delivered from the evil one. This is a temptation that results in us falling, that we just don't stand up to it, that we just don't do what we're supposed to do in our lives every day. And when those temptations comes upon us, temptations come upon us, which they do every day, that we make the wrong decision. And we all do. That, that's nothing to brag about, but we all do that. And so deliver us, or do not uh, lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Preserve us against us, or deliver us so that we're not overcome. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
that his will is going to be done. In verse 5 of Matthew 6, you said it, but I didn't really talk about it. There's a phrase, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. It's understood that God's people pray to him. It's understood. You don't have to tell, but he had to be, these people wanted to be taught. And if this is the same story in Luke, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but they, in Luke they ask him to teach, him to teach them to pray like John's disciples did. But it's just understood that his people pray, that they engage in the activity often. Do you do it daily? Do you? Do we pray for when we eat, when we get up, when we go to bed, do we, during the day, or just whatever? Not only in some moment of crisis in our lives. It's not that. Yeah, it is that partially, but not only at that time. But when it's not involved in a crisis situation, it's not when Jerusalem is about to be taken or when the people that live there are not, going back to Nehemiah's time, when they're in distress or when it's in distress in your life. No, it's every day, all the time. We have to do prayer to God. It's important enough that Jesus taught parables dealing with prayer um, a number of times. What we understand though, it, God does hear and God does answer prayers. It may not be the answer I want. It not be, may not be the time that I want that answer to be given. And it may be the right answer I'm looking for. But he will answer. And it may be no. It may be yes. But we, got to, we have to pray for him. When we pray, you know, he says, do it like this. We were in, having class this morning. And we were talking about, uh, I think it's Joash in Israel. Wicked king. Didn't serve the Lord. And they were under oppression by, I don't know, was it Syria? And he humbled himself and prayed to God, and God heard him. And he preserved him at least for a little while longer, even though he didn't serve him. So he does hear. He does answer prayers. He answered Hezekiah's prayer. Jerusalem was not taken, not in his day. Nehemiah got to go back to Jerusalem and see what was going on and expect he was the governor there as well. So that's what I wanted to say this morning. It, it, again, it's about prayer. And we've had a number of prayers this morning and we'll follow up this hour with uh, some songs and some more prayers. So if you need the prayers of those who are faithful, you're a child of God and you need prayers about something in your life or something wrong in your life, it's a good time to bring it up right now. If you've not been baptized into Christ to be forgiven of sins, it's a good time for that as well. If you would, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?